This is the EWN Radio Network. Welcome to On the Record with your host, Astrum Lux Lucis. Alright, welcome to another episode of On the Record. Today we have in the house Rachel Sage. Rachel, please Hello. introduce yourself. I am a New York based singer songwriter, producer, and record label owner. And I've been running Empress Records um, for quite a while now. And the last few years, I, in addition to releasing my own albums, I've also started releasing albums by Seth Glear, who's a phenomenal singer-songwriter and Grammy-nominated engineer. And also, um, this past year, we signed A Fragile Tomorrow, who are a band of brothers based in Charleston, South Carolina, and Savannah. And they're just a brilliant rock and roll band who are going to be on tour all fall with Indigo Girls, which is very exciting. And uh, last yeah, yeah, we're really thrilled, and, and they're my favorite folk act, too, Indigo Girls, so I'm excited about that. And um, you may recall Kay's Choice, um, mm-hmm. who are reuniting after quite a while, and we're going to release their first rock record in over five years. So um, it's going to be a busy, busy fall, and it's sort of a, a peak of all of the uh, excitement that we've been building up to building the label and uh, putting out 11 of my records, and now all of these uh, other amazing acts. Yeah, and you're also in the studio now, too, working on another record. That's right. You've been following me on uh, on Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just started doing that a couple of days ago, and we recorded basic tracks with drums and piano and guitar. And now I'm getting a little space away from it, and I'm um, going to come back to it next week. So, yeah, lots of stuff going on. Awesome. Great. So uh, tell us about The Little Girl with the Dream. How did you get started in this crazy world of music and entertainment? You know, I think it just kind of found me. Um, I was very, very lucky. My parents who were completely non-musical, and one of my parents is even tone deaf, which I didn't know was possible, but, but I've got a parent who is. Um, wow. You know, I know. It's it's incredible. It's a neat party trick, too, to get them to sing along the Happy birthday, <laughs> not. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, they had a piano in our living room growing up, and it was just a pretty white piece of furniture to them. And to me, it just became my best friend. Around two years old, I, I started dangling my legs off the piano bench and sounding out every every tune I heard in, you know, preschool and then ballet and, and um you know, everywhere else, Broadway, show tunes, Billy Joel, whatever it was, um, it just got into my ears, and then it was a pretty quick um, leap from that into writing my own songs, and I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just painting, you know, sonic pictures, and and, um, ironically, you know, many years later, uh, visual art became pretty much, you know, my biggest inspiration as, as a musician and a composer, so... Those two worlds have always been connected, um, and also dance and theater. I've just been an artsy kid, you know, my whole life. Still am one. Um, 
But yeah, that's wow. how it happened. It was just it was there, and I guess you know the first time someone said something mean to me in school, I had to go home and write about it immediately. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's a good alternative. <laughs> yeah, it is. And uh, yeah. and I learned pretty quickly that it was a lot easier to write songs from a place of angst and conflict than, you know, unadulterated contentment and happiness. <laughs> that really hasn't changed much in, uh, in all these years. So, so did you have training at all? You know, I, my training as a musician really was pretty organic and... and subconscious, but when I look back, it, it really did happen. I mean, I, I studied ballet at the School of American Ballet and a handful of other places that were very intense conservatory-like environments um, from a young age, all the way through, you know, being 15, 16 years old. So I was hearing the greatest classical composers every day for, you know, four to eight hours, um, and I would go home and I would play all of that music by ear. And Hmm. You know, I never really took to proper lessons at the piano. I, I tried a handful of times. It just wasn't how I oriented, and I could never really learn to read music because my ear was so much stronger than my, my will to read what was on the, the dots on the page. But um, <laughs> not something I'm proud of. I mean, I, I believe me, I wish I could. But it's just not how, you know, how music took root for me. Um, it really was through dance and through hearing all of that music all the time and and just, but I, but I would sit and practice, you know, for hours and hours and hours, much to my my sister's chagrin. She would be like, shut up, why are you playing the same Shostakovich piece for the 95th time? And I'm like, oh, is that what it is? Like, I just heard it yesterday. I figured I'd try nice. to play it, <laughs> yeah. Nice. So that was, that was kind of how I absorbed music. And then, you know, in, in uh, grade school and in high school and sleepaway camp, there were all, was all kinds of pop music and rock and folk that I heard and it just sort of filtered in and into my language and, and um, you know at a certain point I became much more interested in, in writing my own stuff probably around 13 <laughs> around my bat mitzvah I came of age as, as a woman in Jewish tradition and I realized I wanted to be a composer that was that was pretty much it nice so how did the songwriting process begin for you did you just kind of start writing? Did you look into different books about songwriting? What was your process for your Definitely no books. I mean, I the only time I've ever uh, gone to a book as far as a songwriting resource was when someone asked me if I would teach a songwriting course. And at, you know, 25 or whatever I was, I suddenly realized I had no idea how I did exactly what I did, but I mm. ought to figure it out if I could you know, should explain it to other people. <laughs> so I went across the street to Barnes and Noble, and and I bought a book on songwriting to see if you know any of the things that it, it, it was talking about were things that I I did. And of course, it wasn't, so that wasn't helpful at all. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I just I think it was a combination of hearing you know much older classical music as a source of melody. And then, you know, also Broadway and, and some, some of the great pop artists who from the 60s, 70s, and uh, a little beyond. Um, and then also just having a, a really kind of keen ear for the song craft that I was hearing, you know, that was more current um, on the radio, I guess, Top 40 radio, alternative radio at the time. And 
all of it fascinated me, you know, throughout my childhood. And then when I got to college, I became much more attuned to great, you know, lyrics like, you know, Suzanne Vega, Sean Colvin, Ani DeFranco, a lot of female singer-songwriters. And that was more my, you know, my awakening, if you will, in terms of the, the type of lyrical writing that I wanted to do. Up until then, it had been much more focused on pop hooks and, you know, making it all sort of commercially viable. Even though I wasn't really thinking consciously about it, but I was listening to a lot of that kind of music. And then I just didn't care at all about that for about four years and was much more interested in the message and, you know, social political content and, you know, feminist content. And, you know, I was a typical college kid, I guess, you know, figuring mm. out who I was. And, and then I sort of split the difference on all of that when I got back to New York and started making records and realized that it could all live in, in a, you know, very um, balanced way in my head. And I, I wasn't betraying my, uh, you know, newfound, uh, you know, political sensibilities if I wrote a pop song <laughs> and vice versa, you know, if I wanted to make it three minutes and really catchy. Have you done any co-writing with people? Um, I never had before until very recently, and I just wrote a song with a young girl, um, Fiona Hart from Ireland. Her uh, publishing her publishing company reached out to me via email, and I don't even know how they, you know, figured out I'd be a good person for her to write with. But it was an interesting email, and I had listened to her her links and her voice, and I thought she had a beautiful voice. So we connected in my office in New York and we wrote a lovely song and uh, I may end up putting it on my record so it was it was really interesting but up until then it had pretty much been a solitary pursuit for me songwriting with the exception of writing jingles in my uh, very early 20s which was something I did quite a bit to pay the rent when I first mm. moved to New York. Um, oh, interesting yeah. yeah do you have any uh, well-known <laughs> jingles that we would recognize? I, I may. Um, I wrote some singles for Crystal Light and uh, for Sears and a bunch of other different soft drinks, all kinds of things, Gillette. Um, it's very early in the morning for rock and roll, but I could give you a little taste of something <laughs> if you're up for it. Sure, imagine go for it. Breeze, imagine a breeze that gets inside you and carries you away. Crystal Light. Introducing new Crystal Light with five delicious calories per serving. There you go. Nice, awesome. <laughs> a little, little rough in the morning, but you know. right, yeah. How did you, um, how did you get involved with jingle writing? Yeah, you know, that was a fun story. I, I uh, went to a, a party uh, of a mutual friend from Stanford University, where I went to college, and and. I, I had been supposed to meet this woman for four years. Our mutual friend was like, you have to meet each other. You're exactly the same. You're going to freak out. You're doppelgangers. You're going to be best friends. And, of course, that's what happened. Um, and nice. then I met her. And she lived next door to a uh, producer named Frank Aversa in her building. And a week later, he had a party. Um, we both went to his party, and I saw these you know, platinum records on the wall. He was working with spin doctors and a whole bunch of other artists. And, um, you know, so, of course, we were all like, wow, you know, we should give him our demos. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we became friendly with him. And at the end of the night, I did, in fact, give him my 
cassette demo with like a hand-drawn cover on it. And um, a few days later, he called me. I was still living at my parents' house. I hadn't even moved out yet. And, and he said, is Rachel there? And can she come into the city to sing on a jingle? And my mom was like, Rachel, someone's on the phone for you. And that was sort of the beginning of my jingle career. And I, I ended up uh, co-writing a spot with him the next day for Crystal Light. And um, we did a whole bunch of other work after that. And I met other people through him. And it just sort of happened organically. But it was a huge blessing and something I really actually enjoyed quite a bit. It was a lot of fun. And it sort of tapped into my theater major sensibility that I could get on a mic and just pretend to be anyone talking about anything. You know? mm. As long as it wasn't was it- drugs or cigarettes, of course. Right, yeah. <laughs> Is was it challenging to kind of get inside that? Like you, you have to write very specific lyrics for those things. It was a really good psychological fit for my personality. For whatever reason, I mean, I think I just love the challenge of doing something succinctly. You know, thirty to sixty seconds, um, trying to find a way to appeal to the person who would be into this product or service or whatever it was um, in a playful way without overthinking it, you know, and mm-hmm. I had always been into commercials. This It sounds strange, but as a little kid, I would imitate commercials, you know, I'd be sitting at the mm-hmm. breakfast table and just like whip out some, you know, McDonald's jingle or like do a voice from something <laughs> completely ridiculous like, you know, a Christian science commercial or, you know, anything. And my parents just thought it was ridiculous and silly and kind of over the top, and I was just being a ham. But I guess all of that kind of, you know, factored into me ultimately being able to, you know, morph that into writing real commercials. And um, mm-hmm. I can't really explain <laughs> why it appealed to me. Maybe just telling a story quickly yeah. something that I, I got into. Talk about your parents for a little bit. Were they supportive of your career growing up? They were, but it was always sort of, you know, the lid on it was academics, and, and they were always academics first. So, you know, if something I was doing seemed like it was going to conflict with that or I was staying up too late, you know, writing music in the basement or, you know, getting ready for a talent show or whatever it was, that would be you know, the end of it. It was like, all right, you know, you got to go to bed, you got to get up at five in the morning and practice for your math test. So, you know, they were very supportive, but they weren't, you know, stage parents supportive, you know, Mm -hmm. and ironically, you know, a lot of kids don't want that because they don't want to be pushed. But, you know, looking back, I would have loved to have had an agent really young and, you know, gone and on auditions and things like that as a kid. I think I was really built for it, and I could have handled that sort of pressure, and I was so driven, and I knew that all I wanted to do was be an entertainer, whether it was dance or music, you know, or or theater. Um, But it was probably good to have that balance (laughs) so I didn't Mm -hmm. go crazy by the time I was, you know, 16 or whatever. But um, it was always attention, though, me wanting to push harder, doing all of these artistic things, um, them encouraging it and being proud of me, but being like, whoa, there's more to life. 
go to a party. Like, not even like, do you want to go to a party? You're going to the party. <laughs> wow, so, yeah. Kind of funny. I guess our roles were a little bit reversed, maybe. But, yeah, so, you know, they, they love the arts, for sure. I mean, my parents love music. They love that. They love dance, and my mother had been a, a dancer as a kid. So what did you go to school for then? You went to Stanford. I was a theater major and a Slavic studies minor um, wow. until the bitter end when I just realized I wasn't going to quite finish in time, and I, I let that go. But, you know, throughout my, my four years, I was definitely focused on those two things. Um, and if you need an explanation as to why on, on the, the latter, I fell in love with a Russian boy, and that's why I wanted to learn Russian. <laughs> so, um, pretty simple and direct. And along the way, I got to read some real, really amazing literature, which was, was a bonus. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it was a pretty natural fit for me, you know, to be studying and pursuing um, all kinds of great theatrical works. And, and then also, inevitably, um, I ended up writing music for a lot of theater productions. Okay. So I would bring my, at, at the time, I was much more electronic music-based um, before I got into it organic live instrumentation. Um, so I had my little Howard Jones, you know, um, rig with an M1 module and a Korg, you know, module wow. and, and yeah. uh, my, my, you know, TR, whatever it was, drum machine. And, and I would just slap all of this down to the theater department. And at one point, like, something got stolen. So, you know, the shop uh, wood shop, like, built me a little case with a padlock on it that could just, like, live backstage when I was, you know, scoring a theater production. It was it was pretty cool. It was like a little setup they, like they might have at the public theater in New York or something. And I felt very pre-professional. You know, I thought, well, maybe this is really what I'll do. I'll score theater productions. You know, and then I always felt like that about whatever I was doing. So when I was yeah. acting in a play, I thought, well, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be an actress. And, you know, and then when I finally got a gig at the Stanford Coffee House playing piano and singing, and they, they actually paid me. They paid me $100. It was my first paycheck as a musician. Wow. Nice. Like, wow. This is what I'm going to do. <laughs> so, you know, I was, I was still figuring it all out, and I loved all of it. Um, but, you know, the one thing I'll say is that nothing ever really gave me an, an emotional outlet or a sense that I was kind of solving you know, my own inner life problems the way that, that music and songwriting did. Um, so I, I, that should have been my clue pretty early on that I was going to focus on that. Yeah, it's like therapy. It definitely is, yeah. And yeah. even, it's like therapy for others when you can write the right song for them. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So did you have any mentors coming up? Oh, yeah, Um I think my earliest mentor was actually a, a singing teacher I had. Um, her name was Gwen Omeron, and she was the most extraordinary woman. Um, I was referred to her, of all people, by Debbie Gibson's manager. And he had heard my demo and thought, well, she, she'll be a good teacher for you. And so I would go to her every Saturday, and I think at the time she was in her 60s, maybe early 70s, and she was sort of a grandmother figure to me, and she had also been a professional opera singer herself, as well as a, a choral singer in, in great MGM musicals, 
which was so cool to me. You know, she had like black and white MGM headshots on the wall of herself in all these movies, and and nice. she'd also sung in the war. You know, to all kinds of uh, you know veterans, and and it was just an amazing life that she had led. And she was so generous about sharing her her stories and and giving advice um, without telling you exactly what to do. So, you know, she, and she would invite She's me to play the goods for herself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the funny thing is she was also a clipper. She would clip out all kinds of articles from the newspaper and from magazines and put them in scrapbooks. And when, when I would be telling her something, it was something I was struggling with or, you know, a career decision, and I used the word career loosely, I was only like, you know, 14, 15, but um, I was so serious about everything I was doing. And she'd say, you know, sweetheart, there's an article you should read. And so she was like my own personal Burrell of service. <laughs> she would flip right to something, and it would be some really deep, you know, mature article that would change my life, you know. Nice. So I, she was really brilliant. Um, and then through that, I had other really a million other great teachers, but... Um, I would say in college, um, my biggest mentor was an incredible uh, playwright, actress, and, and teacher named Anna Devere Smith, who went on to win a lot of awards for her own uh, performance work as a performance artist and, and an actress and playwright. Um, but what she tried to impart to us in our advanced acting class was, you know, just to be the best possible observer that we could be in our daily lives and to to really be almost like a journalist and a detective when harvesting, you know, um, just whatever material we needed to to play a certain part. And she worked very much from the outside in. It wasn't all method actory or, you know, delving up some experience from your childhood to make you cry. It was exactly the opposite. It was very scientific almost, and I think a lot of what I learned from her, I tried to apply to songwriting um, not too long after that. So she was a huge influence on my songwriting. She, she didn't even know it, but, um, but yeah, it was an honor to work with her. I've had a lot of mentors, you know, and I try to, to sort of pay that forward because everyone I position where they can mentor someone else wherever they're at in their career, it's just a no-brainer. You know, it's good karma. So that kind of went into me starting the label in a lot of ways. We'll be right back. I'm looking for a certain kind of woman, and I think you know her. She's an entrepreneur that is highly connected, successful, significant in her own industry, and considered the go-to woman in her community. She's received so much from so many women in business, she's ready to give back to others on their journey, lifting as she climbs. Hi, this is Sandra Yancey, and I'm the founder and CEO of eWomen Network. I'm looking to connect with the woman I've just described who lives in your community so that we might have a conversation about how eWomen Network's proven success system can provide her a platform to elevate her success and ability to support women in business. Our international community of managing directors are influencing the speed of success for women in business around the world. 
If that sounds like something that you want to be part of or know someone we should talk with, send an email to managingdirector at eWomenNetwork.com. That's managingdirector at eWomenNetwork.com. And let's start the conversation. And we're back on the record. Now let's talk about that turning point in your career, that, that first big break that you had. When, sure. What was that, and was there a significant song that did that or an event that happened? Tell us about that. Yeah, well, toward the end of college, as I mentioned, I started hearing all these different uh, singer-songwriters who were writing from a much deeper place, and one of them was Ani DeFranco, and I just thought she was incredibly brilliant and honest and open and, and so direct. I'd never heard lyrics that direct before, just you know, speaking from every aspect of her experience. And it was so powerful to me. So I became really, really uh, interested in, you know, why she wrote the way she did, what her story was, and, and I read about her. And then I, eventually I rallied my Women's Performance Collective, which was a theater group I'd helped start at Stanford, um, to reach out to her management and bring her to Stanford University. Uh, we, we had seen that she was playing in every other city in California but ours. And, you know, we just said we would love to have her come. We really, really love her music. And we got a reply back from her manager. She ended up playing my college dorm room, Ricker Dining Hall. And wow. it was incredible. And, you know, unbeknownst to me, a year or two later, she was going to be playing amphitheaters all over the country. Um, but it really changed my life. And then... Eventually, I ended up writing a song for her, um, and it was on my first record called Sister Song. I sent it to her, and she ended up inviting me to go on tour with her. Everybody's looking over your shoulder. Seems they can't wait to hear what's next. Everybody's saying she's looking older. Could it be there is a cruel sun next to all this endless adulation? All this reckless situation and I will stay with you tonight in case this corset gets too tight and I will keep you company cause that's what a sister should be Be the year of the human that would be a bit 
What did that look like for you in the beginning? Because it's, you know, it's kind of rough and nobody really wants to pay you. And the turnout's always not that great. And so that can take a toll on you and you might be thinking, why am I doing this? So, you know, talk about the early days of touring and what did you do to um, get the better gigs? And how did you kind of overcome the the obstacles or the the, the sort of the... The disillusions of, oh, my God, there's only two people here, and they both have to be here because they work here, you know? <laughs> <laughs> are you speaking from experience, I gather? No, yes, not are. at all. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there is something that I, I learned really early on from a brilliant peer of mine who also helped me um, with my own booking in the beginning. His name was Walter Parks, and he was the first person I I collaborated with at Empress Records. Um, he was my first label manager slash booking person slash promoter. You know, we were both slash everything times a thousand in, in the early years. And he used to say every single day in this funny, craggly voice that he has, Rachel, go where the love is. Go where the love is. You know, it was like something that Tommy <laughs> Hooker might say. And it became so deeply ingrained in me that it really was my compass, you know. So if I was invited to play a benefit and it was a cause that I believed in so strongly but they couldn't pay me anything, but they had reached out to me and they wanted me to play it, of course I'd say yes. If I submitted to 20 folk festivals, because at the time all I wanted to be was like, you know, offspring of Indigo Girls and Ani DeFranco and whoever else, neo-folk, you know, who was inspiring me at the time. But I didn't get into any of those. I didn't let it derail me, you know. It was a place I wanted to fit in, but if they thought I was too pop or too quirky or they didn't like piano or whatever it was, go where the love is thing in my head and in my heart. And I would just get back to it, you know, and, and apply to the pop festivals and apply to, you know, form at a conference or CMJ or South by Southwest or whatever it was. And I, and I, I don't know, I had so much drive back then. And it was definitely a matter of quantity to, you know, I would reach out and pitch so many things with an energy and a fervence that, 
you know, I don't have anymore probably. <laughs> you know, you're in your early 20s and you're just sitting at the computer and you don't get up for 20 hours. Like maybe you get up to go to Starbucks and get a chai. <laughs> like that's your meal of the day, but you're not going to get up, damn it, until someone writes you back and says yes. Like that's just how I was and I blame the ballet. I really do. I always say like, you know, when you're taught to dance on point and to the point where you don't remember that it hurts anymore after mm. like eight hours, what's sitting for 20 hours at a computer trying to get some gigs? You know, like, mm. it's, it's nothing. That's like easy. So I think I was just a little crazy. I was like a little bit mashugi, as they say in Yiddish. I wouldn't really take no for an answer. And when I got no, I would just move on to the next thing without letting it bother me. Um, I had a very thick skin. You know, also all that theater rejection, I think that helped. You know, you audition for all kinds of plays. <laughs> One in every ten you get the lead, and the others you don't even get a bit part. It's like, you know, I think all of that stuff prepared me. But, you know, beyond that, I think some of the commercial stuff maybe helped me too because you learn to understand that, you know, it's like the client, it's their call. You can't take it personally. And... They don't even know what they want, and they haven't even necessarily, they haven't seen you perform. I don't know that I even had videos up on YouTube then. None of that existed. It was like MySpace was your calling card. So if they clicked on 30 seconds of something and it just wasn't for them, you know, that's their issue. Now on to the next. And, you know, I will say that um, very, very quickly, things like MySpace, um, and at the time, I think Napster, you know, some of the very new Internet-based, um, you know, mediums were very, very helpful to me. Um, even though eventually those phased out, mm-hmm. it was cool to be able to put up music on mp3.com or MySpace and have people from another country hear it and, and write to you and tell you that they, you know, connected with your music. And one you know, message like that in a week could be the difference between you wanting to quit or thinking you had something valuable to offer. So I think it was a good thing that I just put myself out there on all of those platforms and allowed that organic kind of uh, build to happen. Let's talk about, you talked about that wanting to quit factor. Has that come up for you and what do you do when it does come up to kind of pull yourself back in and get yourself back on path? Nice leading question there. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I don't want to quit too often. I don't think that's really how I tick. Um, Mm -hmm. I want to quit a lot of other things in my life, you know. (laughs) I want to quit, like, having to do normal things like, you know, go to the dentist and and uh, do laundry and pay bills, and, you know, and, and even some of the grunt work involved in running a label. Um, the things that aren't naturally how I'm wired are things that I tend to get frustrated with and, and go like, oh, my God, like, you know, I just designed something, you know, in Photoshop for three hours, and now my Photoshop is frozen, and it's four in the morning, and this is due tomorrow, like, those kinds of things really can frustrate me, and 
and I can hit a wall with that because I also do have a little bit of ADD and I hyper focus to get things done like that. Hmm. So, you know, th that's really where my weakness is. And, and the more expressive aspects of music and things that are directly related to writing and performing and, and even pitching, all of those things I have kind of an endless well of drive with. But, you know, for better or worse, that's not all that we have to do as artists. We have to also be promoters and, and you know, we also have to be incredibly social and, and share in a, in a very generous, open way things that 20 years ago artists could very easily get away with keeping private, keeping to themselves and kind of guarding as something precious. You know, every inner thought, every process throughout the day, all of that becomes sort of quote-unquote content now to connect mm -hmm. with your listeners. Yeah. And that I really enjoy. And then there are also aspects about that that I have to push myself, um, you know, just like a muscle. And like, for instance, the other day in the studio, starting to record my new album, um, it was such a beautiful, you know, moment. We're in the studio and we've got the drum set up and my drummer's incredible and my cellist is there and we're playing and we're really into it and we're getting good takes and the day is going so well, and then it, you know, it sort of hits 7 o'clock, and I, I remember, like, oh, I didn't Instagram anything, or, like, I didn't take any pictures, <laughs> I didn't do any video, and that's, like, my record label self-manager head kind of, yeah. you know, creeping in, and years ago, you just didn't even have to worry about that. You didn't have to think about that. So the challenge for me is to make it a fun game and to make it as expressive and creative as I possibly can, so I don't feel like it's interfering with the flow or with, you know, with the mm -hmm. process. So what I started doing was making little paintings and drawings, like re literally like five-inch craft kind of, you know, canvases, because I had some art supplies with me, because I always do, because I'm crazy like that. <laughs> and <laughs> in between, like, every take or, you know, every, when every song was done, when everybody else would go, like, have a coffee or grab a sandwich... I was drawing these little mini canvases of the artwork and just putting it somewhere fun and taking a picture of it because I just didn't have the wherewithal to, like, write, like, how I'm feeling now, hashtag studio, <laughs> hashtag whatever. Like, it would, it would just sort of, like, piss me off to have to do that at the moment. So, yeah. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> a little key into my process there. Arts and crafts makes everything better. It's that yeah. is my my mental yoga for sure. Yeah. Well, it's getting back in touch with your your inner kid. You know, like That's inner what it kid is. It's and, true. and doing yeah. finger paints and whatnot. You know. Yeah. It's yeah. true. You nailed it. <laughs> yeah. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. One of my mottos for business owners is, you can't do it alone. Whether you're in the startup stage of your business or you're scaling, you can't grow without relationships to provide support, wisdom, and new customers. eWomen Network is your home to connect with other women entrepreneurs who've been where you are or are experiencing the same challenges. We have chapters across the U.S. and Canada that have monthly events featuring our trademarked process called Accelerated Networking to ensure you get the contacts, resources, and leads you need to grow your business. 
And once you become a member, you get many benefits, including two one-on-one coaching sessions, unlimited access to our membership database, your own personal profile page, and discounts on products and services with our business partners, such as UPS and American Express Open. Join the eWomen Network community and let us help you live your dream. For details, visit eWomenNetwork.com. And we're back on the record. So when was the next big break for you, that game-changing career moment? What happened there? You know, I played Lilith Fair after that, and that was through some Sonic Boobs contest, I think. That was a big break for me. But I think after that was actually when I decided to be a little crazy one day, put my hair up in a bun, put some glasses on, and walk my own CD into Tower Records, pretending to be the manager of the person whose CD I was holding. So I, I, I pretty much disguised myself. And I walked in, and I asked for the buyer. I said, hi, I, I represent an artist named Rachel Sage, and she's performing at you know, the Mercury Lounge, and, and we'd love to get her CD in your listening station. You know, who would I speak to about that? And a week later, I got a phone call. And to let me know that, that that my CD had, in fact, been added to the listening station at the East Village Tower Records and that it had become the best-selling uh, indie artist album they'd ever had in the listening station. Wow. So that was nice. like a big thing that I, you know, had sort of pushed through some fear to, to get to. But, but it was also something I could kind of write down as a quote, like, can you say that again? <laughs> you know, like, really? And I, and I don't really know how it happened, but I think it just was that levy, level playing the field of it being in with other things like Sarah McLaughlin and Jewel. And so it was, it was a good um, motivation to try to keep putting myself out there, not only among other independent artists, but also major label artists as well. So so it pushed me to also send my album to college radio and AAA radio and to, to see where that would go. Wow. And so is that kind of where the label began to form? In effect, yeah. After that, I, I sent my album, again, you know, pretending to be a manager and whatnot and signing another name um, with a cover <laughs> letter to, uh, I think, like 200, 300 college stations. And, um, yeah, I think some of those skills, that research and just, you know, casting those lines. And then I started a database where I would call the stations and just, you know, say hi, make sure they got in the CD. I don't know how I had all that energy, but that was really how I began. And then then I got an intern, and then it sort of just grew from there. Wow. Now, where did you find the intern? NYU, actually. Wow. But my first intern grew with me, and, and she eventually became a label manager for me. So Wow. You never know. Yeah, that's a good intern. Hell sure. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I haven't had much luck with my interns, so. <laughs> it can be tricky, for sure. Yeah, yeah. You, you have to um, interview them and, and cast them just like you're hiring a manager, I think, like you're hiring, you know, someone who you would, you would be paying. It doesn't even matter that at the, at that point they're learning the ropes for college credit or whatever it is. I think, you know, you're still looking for that 
star quality and something that they'll bring that they can teach you, really. So you've had some placements. Tell us about that. I think my first placements were um, MTV. And then, you know, I think I got something else on um, Army Wives and something else on, you know, a Showtime um, some, some preview, you know, where they just use an instrumental bed, and things started to just trickle in. Um, and then, it, you know, a couple years ago, um, I got some emails from some fans, actually, saying, have you seen the Abbey Lee Dance Company dancing to your music on YouTube? And I had no idea what they were talking about, and I, I went to check it out, and there were these leaked videos of these little girls dancing, like perfect adults, you know, just incredible <laughs> technique, spinning around doing 20 pirouettes to a handful of my songs. And they were up on YouTube with little messages in the content window saying, like, to be aired, you know, at such and such date, episode, blah, blah, blah. So all of this information was already out that supposedly my songs were going to be on this TV show called Dance Moms. And... I knew the show, and I, I'd seen it a handful of times because, it, as I've explained, I'm obsessed with ballet. <laughs> so I was a fan of these little girls, but I'd never really keyed in, you know, to the music and, and how that all worked. And what had happened was my music was in a library with a company. You know how that goes. You're just in a general library, and you've uploaded, like, a million of your songs. Um, and, and their job is to try to source any and every reality show or other series um, across a wide variety of, of channels. So I really didn't, you know, pitch that show specifically. Um, but it was, in fact, true. These leaks to YouTube, and I think it was January two years ago, um, Maddie Ziegler performed my song, Birthday. And it was a thrill. You know, I, I was already a big fan of her dancing, and... and She's just incredible. So I, I think I cried. You know, I sat there and she, she danced to my, my little ballad, and I was like, oh, my God, that's so cool. Um, and then they just started using more and more of my material from uh, that album and then eventually a couple of other prior albums. So it's been an interesting, you know, ride with, with uh, Dance Moms and, and the ALDC. And I like to think that, they just heard something in my piano playing or the way that I arranged that reminded them of, you know, music that they've danced to in other contexts because I have all that, that ballet training. But who knows? You know, maybe they just, you know, it's the right tempo. Like, I really have no idea. Um, I've never gotten to really, like, sit down and talk with the music supervisor of that show. I've never met them. It's wow. all still very much filtered through this library. But... Mm. What was, what's been cool is that um, I reached out personally to some of the cast of the show um, to thank them for, for using my music, and I was able to meet up with the dance team, um, both in Pittsburgh and eventually in Ireland along one of my tours. So I've forged a few friendships with some of the, the young girls and their moms, and um, it's been pretty cool. I was alone when you came. Along and rescued me And we became one Before we knew what was happening now Everything we wanted is ours for the asking Ceilings are ascending where they were collapsing Oh, oh, oh 
like for you? That's the thing. There really isn't a typical day. Um, I'll give you a typical day on the road and then a typical day when I'm off the road. <laughs> All right. um, you know, like recently I was in England on tour um, playing some festivals and, and doing some uh, shows with an actor-singer guy named John Barrowman who um, does a lot of TV shows. So I was a support act and I was out with my violinist, Kelly Halloran, and my amazing tour manager, Meredith, and we were schlepping and gallivanting all across England, the UK, and also Scotland, and um, we would get up usually just in time to check out of the hotel and maybe drive two hours, or it could be five or six hours, and then we would get to the venue, you know, bring in all the gear. We all help carry everything all together, so none of us, you know, full of muscle, and, um, you know, if the hotel was nearby, we might check into the hotel just before we get to the venue, or if it's far, we might not, you know, until after the show. Um, usually there'd be a couple of hours after we'd load in to, to kind of get the, the lay of the land of the venue and watch the sound check of the main act, um, which was always cool because we'd just be in the wings watching John Barrowman and his amazing band and his dancers and dancers. Um, you know, doing their thing and learning, you know, from his musical director who was incredible. 
and that would also be the window in which we would have to go get food and make sure we got dinner, even if it was 4 p.m. You know, we got to make sure we eat something before we go on stage. So we would either step out, you know, to the local area, a cute little village or city or whatever it was, and grab a sandwich from, you know, whatever their version of Starbucks was or, you know, find a little pub. Or maybe there was no time for that and our tour manager had to run out and do that while we were, you know, tuning our instruments and, and quickly doing our sound check. So a little range in there, but that was the gist of it. And then, of course, the most important part getting changed and getting primped for the show, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, which is always a, a little bit of a meditation for me because uh, I've got a little diva in me, so, you know, for <laughs> me, like, just a little, putting on makeup and glitter and doing my hair and picking out my outfit and making sure I match with my, my violinist and all that stuff is actually, <laughs> it's, it's like another... Just like crafting, it's like my yoga part too, you know. <laughs> Taking my time with the French braid can be the difference between me being relaxed or not. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's great. And then, you know, you'd have your power set, 30 minutes or whatever, and, um, and it, you know, the work isn't over, the play isn't over because, you know, after you get all your gear off stage in, in 30 seconds, of course you <laughs> want to run, run to the merch table to greet all of the people who've just heard you and to be, you know, as as uh, friendly and, and inviting as a, a person as you can. And, and all of those people have sat politely through your set and hopefully they really connected with it. And so, you know, I think that's kind of where the, the, the work begins really as far as trying to make that connection between the music and selling your CDs and getting people to sign up on your mailing list. And thankfully, I really enjoy all of that that process. And, and I love meeting people, in, especially in foreign countries, with with really sexy accents, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's, you know, and then eventually we, after we watch the other set, or maybe I'm writing up an interview on the computer in the dressing room while the other person is playing and watching part of their set, and we load out and, again, try not to pull a muscle. And then uh, we get to the hotel. Sometimes we're ravenously hungry and eat bad food in the lobby restaurant or, you know, open that can of emergency sardines or whatever it is. And, and then another work day probably begins, you know, for a few hours of catching up on email and posting photos online. And, you know, it's, it's a long day. I think I usually get to bed around two, three in the morning on the road. That's my average. Um, and then, of course, if you have a radio to do in the morning, you might have to get up at an uncomfortable hour. <laughs> not ready. But, you, you know, you try to just look at it like, God, I'm so lucky. Like, someone wants me to go on their radio program in wherever I am, in the middle of nowhere, in Wales. Like, yeah, it's 7 in the morning, and I feel sick, but, <laughs> you know, I'm going to get to talk about what I love and, and you know, grab a chai at, you know, at a really awesome cafe in Wales on the way. So, you know, it, it's all good. I love scoring. Can, can you tell? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, definitely. So, yeah, that's a day in the life of what I actually adore doing. Um, awesome. Think, being home is is uh, is a whole other thing, and and it takes a lot of mental adjusting. 
when there's no show to do it and no load in at four o'clock. I'm I'm not as happy a camper sometimes, but yeah. Um, it's a are balance. you are you working more in the label at that point? Yeah, all of the stuff that kind of had to wait until I had more time and could be home and take that meeting and and also interact and and really you know, connect on a substantive level with the other artists that we're working with and make sure I know what's going on with them and touch base with our marketing person, you know, and, and, and my label manager, make sure all the deadlines are happening correctly and, and if there's, you know, new graphic design that needs to happen, sometimes I do that myself and sometimes we delegate it. Um, but all of that, yeah, definitely very hands-on with. So, when I come back from a tour, it's like, okay, you know, when can we have this meeting and when can we get this file? And it, a lot of things sort of converge at once. And I can, you know, there have been a few panic attacks, you know, along the way. And usually what I have to do again is craft <laughs> or, or, you know, just go out for a really, really beautiful Italian meal with a friend. You know, it's like you have to find your things that, can help you decompress, and for me, those are making stuff with my hands, seeing people that I love, and maybe watching some bad TV or, or going to see a movie, and if I can do one of those things in a 48, 72-hour period, I'm amazed at what else I can get done, but if I go too long, just, you know, nose to the grindstone, I don't think it's healthy, and I also think that's yeah. when any artist can get sick or get run down, you know, so it, it really is a balance, and I'm not always the best at it, but I'm, I'm trying to get better the older that I get. Yeah. So what are some final words of wisdom that you can offer to our listeners? Oh, goodness. I think, you know, just stay in touch with, like we talked about, that, that inner, that kid that mm-hmm. knew why, you know, he or she wanted to be on a stage and, and perform or sit and write in a journal and, and write down poetry, you know, wherever that kid lives and, and whatever it takes to, to get back in touch with that, I think that is one of your most valuable assets. And if it's someone in your life who makes you laugh, if it's a romantic relationship you're in, if it's knowing that you need to go out to Coney Island and ride the roller coaster once in a while, whatever it is, <laughs> you know, that's every bit as important as practicing your instrument. And it's every bit as important as sending out your next newsletter. And it took me a long, long time to figure that out. And I'm still, you know, learning and relearning it. But, you know, you have to have something to write about and to give. Um, so you have to replenish that, and, and that would be my biggest bit of advice is just, you know, don't burn out because you think that, you know, there's some artificial deadline by, by when you have to achieve your goals. It's a process, and if you're not having fun and enjoying it along the way, you probably need to make an adjustment somewhere. Well, folks, that wraps up another episode of On the Record. Tune in next week. 